Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are very pleased to have with us award-winning historian, Philip Mansell. Mr. Mansell is co-founder of the Society for Court Studies. He is a fellow of the Royal Historical Society, the Royal Society of Literature, and the Institute of Historical Research. Mr. Mansell is the author of numerous books, including The Court of France, 1789, 1830, Sultans and Splendor, The Last Years of the Ottoman, World Constantinople, City of the World's Desire, Paris Between the Empires, 1814-1854, Aleppo, The Rise and Fall of Syria's Great Merchant Cities, and I can go on and on, um, but today we will be focusing on um, Mr. Mansell's deeply researched, highly nuanced a scholarly and great read, King of the World, The Life of Louis XIV, which I purchased directly from Amazon. And just go on to Amazon. It's, it's a great and worthwhile purchase. Um, let's just perhaps start a little bit about your background and how you became interested in Louis XIV. Um, yes, well, I've always been really quite obsessed with French history and how France had a huge impact on Europe and the world. I read French history at Oxford. I studied in, I've lived in Paris. I studied there. I did a doctorate on the French court. In a way, the court is the sort of great French institution like Parliament for England or the army for Prussia. With The court was the center of French life and no one had a grander or more famous court than Louis XIV, who built Versailles and really made it a world hub, if not the world hub. So I was fascinated by French history and the records of French history, the quality of the memoirs, the letters, the diaries that all the participants wrote. I mean, they were doing terrible things in the day. Then they would run up to their attics in Versailles and write about them in the evening. And this goes down to General de Gaulle, who wrote famous memoirs, uh, among the best political memoirs of the 20th century. So you have this record commenting on the acts. Of course, it's never an accurate record of the acts. And that also fascinated me. France and the world and events and the written word. Fascinating. What, 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 what did Europe look like? Let's just set the scene. You know, we're in the 1600s. Um, what did Europe look like? when um, Louis XIV began his reign. Just a little background for the audience. France is there about a quarter smaller than its size today. And it's surrounded by the kingdoms and provinces ruled by the House of Austria, the Habsburgs, Spain, what's now Belgium, Austria, part of Germany, part of Italy is all ruled from Madrid and Vienna. And France felt very threatened by this. Then England is already, though small, really quite rich and powerful because the economy is doing well and it has a good navy. Poland is a great power. A quarter of Europe is ruled by the Ottoman Empire. And the Ottoman Empire is a Muslim world power and the best friend of France because they both hate the House of Austria, Spain and Austria. So France is very Catholic, but it's a great ally of the Muslim caliph, the Ottoman caliph. 
Russia is very distant. Sweden is more powerful at the time. These great rival powers competing for trade, for territory. Warfare was really thought to be rather wonderful for a young king to prove himself in battle, to take cities, to um, fight himself in battle. That was the done thing. And uh, I, I believe um, I read um, that uh, Louis XIV identified um, in, with Alexander the Great as he looked back in, in, in history. Yes, he commissioned pictures of Alexander the Great tapestries about him because Alexander the Great was a hereditary king, king, king of Macedon after his father, and yet he conquered the world almost as far as India. So that was a real world model for Louis XIV, who saw himself as a world monarch. He was going to get Louisiana in America. He was going to get bits of Africa and run the slave trade. His missionaries said, oh, you sire, you should conquer Thailand for the church and for France, China for the church and for France. There was even a scheme to divide the Ottoman Empire if it collapsed. And of course, always, like all French rulers, he's worried about Paris being close to the frontier. So he wants more territory in Belgium and the Rhineland. He really wanted the whole Rhineland for France. Um, and, and I think you also wrote that, that um, he identified himself um, as the Sun King with, with Apollo. Uh, what, what was that all about? What does that mean? Well, it's quite traditional, like a lot of these things that Louis XIV did. In fact, previous kings of France had slightly identified with the sun king. Lots of pharaohs and other monarchs identified with the sun because the sun is everywhere and the sun warms everybody and reaches everybody. And he takes it as his emblem in 1662 at a grand tournament in the middle of Paris, the, the Carousel. And it's it's just trying to show he's better than other monarchs. Okay. And what, what would you say, um, as he embarks on, on, on really a, a, you know, a worldwide endeavor, um, what were his main accomplishments in the foreign realm and then separately uh, internally in, in France itself? In the foreign realm, he had various disastrous wars which he had more or less started himself. But he did keep three fine provinces, French Flanders with Lille, Alsace with Strasbourg, and the Franche-Comté with Besançon near Switzerland. So he left France larger than he found it, which you couldn't say for Napoleon, who left France smaller and weaker than he found it. And in fact, he was fairly disastrous in diplomacy. His, some of his acts turned Europe against him. He inherited a monarchy allied to almost everybody in Europe except Austria. And he left it without any friends except Sweden and the Ottoman Empire. But, and this is really very important for all monarchs of the time who thought dynastically, he left his grandson, Philip V, King of Spain, partly through Louis XIV's efforts. And there is still a Bourbon reigning as King of Spain today. So that's a major accomplishment. And to, together, France and Spain in the 1780s helped create 
United States. They fought for the freedom of the United States against Britain. And internally, he worked very, very hard. It's, he's not just a party king rushing off to balls with his girlfriends. He's working till after midnight, even when he's over 60, going through papers, speaking with his ministers, corresponding directly with provincial officials, with ambassadors, and so on. And he kept France firmly under control. In fact, the monarchy lived on the credit he had built up in terms of respect or and prestige for years after his death. And he did begin taxes, which did tax nobles. So he started the possibility of a more egalitarian tax and legal regime for France, but his successors didn't really follow through. He did bring in new law codes, which began the codification of French law, which are partly a model for the code Napoleon. But all this was partly um, weakened by the fact that he expelled or encouraged the Protestants to leave, and he began a police state, and his wars left France, the French economy, much weaker than the English. What, what, was he um, a, a, a strong decision maker, or was he swayed by powerful ministers? Well, that's the key to understanding him. The theory is, which is written on the ceiling of the Galerie des Glaces, his gorgeous room in the heart of Versailles, le roi gouverne par lui-même, the king governs by himself. He, After the death of Mazarin, his tutor and chief minister, there was no more chief minister. In theory, he made all the decisions which was true to a certain extent, but later ministers like Louvois, the ruthless war minister, were extremely powerful. He said so himself. And there were two factions, the Louvois family and the Colbert family of his brilliant economics minister, Colbert. And the king could be manipulated on some decisions, but on the whole, he retained the last word. But what shows how powerful ministers were, even under this awe-inspiring, hard-working young monarch, is that after 1683, the death of Colbert, nothing really goes right in his reign. The many disastrous wars and decisions and the expulsion of the Protestants. And so I think that proves that Colbert had huge influence. So he, he, he's, um, he's a long-serving monarch. He's, he begins very young, serves an incredibly long time. He's, he's hardworking, as, as you just illustrated. Um, what was the um, court like culturally? Um, the splendor, you know, with all the hard work, there, there must have been a lot of, of, you know, splendor and the partying and the balls and the dances all that good French stuff. And I, I really think they do it better than anybody else. I mean, until COVID, the, the fireworks at New Year's Eve, everybody went there, the fireworks at Versailles, as in Louis XIV train, are the best in the world, the best I've ever seen, certainly. The music, and now, interestingly, 
every evening before COVID, there was some event on in the palace, commercial, cultural, private, government, something bringing not only crowds in the day, but paying guests in the evening. So that shows how successful his palace was. And his court, in my opinion, he was the greatest cultural patron there's been in history because he's not only commissioning brilliant plays by Racine and Moliere, whom he knew and talked about the subject of the plays with them, great gardens with Le Nôtre. He goes around the garden with Le Nôtre as an equal in the similar wheelchairs when they're old men. So he honours the artist. That's what's different between him and other monarchs. He treats Bernini, who comes from Rome to Paris, almost as an equal to, to make a sculpture of him. Bernini's allowed to run his fingers through the royal hair, which is really quite, quite something for 1665. And then there's music. He adored music. He talks to Lully. He auditions singers for the palace choir himself. It's the best music in Europe. All the foreign ambassadors said after going to the chapel at Versailles, you had to block your ears when you went to other chapels and other courts. And architecture, he's, he designs the Trianon himself. Uh, he, he makes Versailles something extraordinary. He puts sculpture in the gardens, oh, about a thousand pieces of sculpture in his gardens. So, so he, it's in every medium, ballet. He himself begins choreography. There's n nobody decided on the art of writing down dance steps before him. French ballet sweeps through Europe, much more successful than French armies. He's really a dedicated to the arts. He's, he's a brilliant Apollo. It's a pity that he devoted so much time to being Mars, the god of war also.